Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, the Independent Podcast Network, and the Family Podcast Network, and we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 820 AM across Central Virginia, and 1650 AM in Hampton Roads, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Colin Green, a family physician and retired Army colonel who currently serves as Virginia State Health Commissioner, a role that includes leadership of the Virginia Department of Health and local health districts across the Commonwealth. Commissioner Green joins us for a conversation about his professional journey in military service, his objectives as the leader of the Commonwealth's public health apparatus, and more. And so with that, welcome to the program, Commissioner Green. Well, thank you very much. Well, we appreciate you being with us. I just mentioned your military service, so let's start there. As I understand, you spent 30 years in the Army in a variety of roles, from family medicine, including delivering babies, to being the chief medical officer of hospitals in North Carolina and Iraq overseas, stateside as a director of the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. So let me say first, thank you for your service. And let me ask you this, when you think back on your military career, what are some of the memorable moments or highlights that come to mind for you? Well, there are probably more of those than I could uh, articulate in the time that we have. But uh, first of all, it was an honor to serve. And uh, honestly, it was a a wonderful career. And I was uh, given the opportunity to do things and go places I would never have had the chance to do had I not been in the military. And for anybody who is a a family doctor, who's a young family doctor, who's interested in some adventure, uh, it's hard to beat a military career. Uh, and you have the you have the satisfaction of serving your country and and your fellow Americans as well. The high points I would say, and I'll relate these more to the ones that are pertinent to public health. Uh, the first is I was uh, able to attend a fellowship, a faculty development fellowship, part of which was obtaining a master's degree in public health, uh, and that happened back in uh, 1999 to 2001 at the University of Washington. And that laid the groundwork, honestly, not only for my future career here with the Virginia Department of Health, but also with a lot of the duties that I had during the the latter part of my Army career. As one gets more senior in the military, and it doesn't matter which field you're in, you're expected to be in charge of things and in charge of people. And if you're a a physician, a lot of times you're an advisor to a very senior officer, typically a general, who has a, a broad span of responsibility and depends upon you to assist with medical advice and particularly preventive medical advice. So it's very much a public health role. The, the opportunity to lead the Womack Army Medical Center as the chief medical officer uh, allowed me to to see, a, again, a broad functioning of a large hospital, gave me a lot of information on how healthcare facilities and healthcare systems work. We had, we had a, a, a large enrolled population, approximately 120,000 soldiers and families. So that experience was extremely useful, uh, managing several hospitals at a higher level, again, as a staff officer for a senior general. And then the opportunity to lead uh, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, which we refer to as RARE, gave me the chance to not only learn how research organizations work and how a lot of the partnerships with academia, uh, with uh, business, with the community work, with government as well, but also one of the missions there while I was there in 2016 was making vaccines. And we were busily trying to make a vaccine against the Zika virus at the time, 
Uh, needless to say, learning how the vaccine manufacturing development and manufacturing process takes place was extremely useful uh, when it came time to be in public health during the, the COVID pandemic. So my Army career was extraordinarily rewarding. Again, got to do things that a, a simple family doctor um, finishing his, his training in Lynchburg, uh, where I was, would not have been able to do, uh, but also a, a tremendous preparation for a public health career. Well, it sounds like a fascinating journey, and I appreciate you sharing it with me. And that bit you just shared about vaccine work and and development for the Zika virus and and how that related forward to your work in the public health sector during COVID, that really is fascinating. Do you wish you could focus on practicing medicine without all the distractions? Covaris is here to help. As a leader in medical professional liability insurance with more than 45 years experience, Covaris provides insurance protection with data-driven predictive modeling to help you mitigate the risk of claims. By combining insurance protection with risk analytic services, you can reduce distractions and focus on improving clinical, operational, and financial outcomes. Covaris is reinventing what you should expect from your medical professional liability provider. Find out all Covaris can offer you at Covaris.com. That's C-O-V-E-R-Y-S.com. Insurance products issued by Medical Professional Mutual Insurance Company and its insurance subsidiaries, Boston, Massachusetts. Let's stay on a military-related topic for just a moment more. As you know, Commissioner Green, Virginia has a military medics and corpsmen program that helps veterans with service-related clinical experience transition to private sector clinical work in hospitals as they work towards earning the necessary civilian credentials to advance their medical careers. As I'm sure you know, several hospitals in Virginia participate in this program. Even so, across the nation and here in the Commonwealth, there's a pronounced healthcare workforce shortage. I can tell you that hospitals are spending more now on labor costs than ever before. And so with that bit of background, I wonder what thoughts you might have as a military veteran about healthcare workforce shortages generally and perhaps creative solutions, whether it's the MMAC program or others that could be tried on the state level to address some of these workforce challenges. Well, certainly offering to cover the debts that healthcare workers are accumulating during their training is something that is being looked at and should be looked at. Uh, The military has been doing this for a long time. And in fact, the Army and your tax sellers, thank you very much, paid for a sizable amount of my college education as well as three out of four years of my medical school. And I came out of that owing an obligation to to the Army of seven years. Uh, And it was a great deal. I could have left the Army and gone into civilian practice had I chosen on year eight uh, with no debt. Uh, and that's uh, a pretty tall order if you don't have if you don't have that kind of situation, particularly nowadays with the expense of education. So anything that can assist with debt repayment, I, th- I think, is certainly something to look at. Uh, need- needless to say, I enjoyed being in the army and stayed the remaining 23 years to finish out the tour. But not everybody is in a position or, or cares to make that choice. But they do have the wonderful opportunity to leave after their tour is over and not have any debt. So that that's one. The second is I would I would encourage every organization these healthcare workers to make connections with veterans organizations and indeed reach out to military organizations. Uh, there are uniformed services organizations for most of the major medical specialties, uh, and and keep your your eyes and ears out for individuals who are going to be leaving service that are going to be looking for uh, employment in the civilian world. I think you'll find some very rich experience and indeed people with experiences that would not have been uh, obtained elsewhere. 
You were appointed state health commissioner in April of 2022. Prior to that, you served as director of the Lord Fairfax Health District, which serves the city of Winchester and Clark, Frederick, Page, Shenandoah, and Warren counties in what we can characterize as the northern Shenandoah Valley. That's one of 35 local health districts in Virginia, which has 119 local health departments, and they all function to sort of feed into the Virginia Department of Health, which is a statewide agency with programmatic and regulatory oversight for a range of public health functions, including epidemiology, health data, health equity and improvement, vital records, emergency preparedness, clean drinking water, food safety, just to name a few. With your experience having worked both at the local level in public health and now at the statewide level, I wonder what are your primary objectives or focal areas of emphasis in your leadership role at at VDH as the agency continues to transition out of pandemic response mode? Our basic mission at VDH has not changed since I started working with the agency in 2017. And again, I I, I left my last military assignment and kind of turned around, turned my back to D.C. and commuted west to Winchester, which uh, from a driving point of view was a delightful change. <laughs> but our mission our mission has not changed during that time, and that is we protect the health and promote the well-being of all persons in Virginia. Those are the, the three key drivers that have been behind my view of public health, and they have not changed d- despite having ascended to the commissioner's office. So protect health, promote well-being of all persons. The first one is protecting health, and there are numerous ways that we do that. Some of them have been going on for a century or more that we kind of take for granted, and we need not to take our eye off the ball. And those are environmental health issues, uh, specifically sanitation and keeping food uh, and and keeping water clean and safe. Uh, And sometimes we, we do things like, for example, when we have a nor'easter coming into the bay, sometimes we have to briefly limit taking shellfish. And the reason for that is shellfish filters the water, and after a storm, there's a lot of runoff, and the water gets contaminated, and you don't want to eat those shellfish for a day or two or three after that storm comes through. Sometimes it's making sure that septic systems work so that they don't overflow and run into creeks and rivers and end up in people's well water. Uh, Make sure that wells are properly dug, properly placed not too close to things they shouldn't be close to, and so on. Uh, these are these are things we really kind of take for granted, but environmental health advancements between 1900 and 1960 added roughly 20 years of life expectancy to the United States. So things we don't want to take our eye off the ball. We screen infants for, for inherited diseases, for example, and then we provide a safety net of health services, specific health services, in underserved communities uh, where people can't get care. We keep our eyes open for infectious disease threats, and, and COVID kind of took over from that mm-hmm. that lane. Uh, but we're watching monkeypox. We're keeping an eye on an Ebola outbreak in Africa to make sure it doesn't trickle out into the outside world. We chronically keep an eye on, on things like Lyme disease, hepatitis, et cetera. So that's all under protecting health. But health is more than just the absence of disease. So we also work to promote well-being. Uh, and well-being obviously is different, a little bit different for everybody, but again, it's just a feeling of being healthy more so than just the absence of disease. It's a, it's a physical, it's mental, it's, it's psychological, it's social, it's spiritual, all of those realms. Uh, and in that range, we're, we're looking at behavioral health issues, which are, you know, unfortunately very prevalent right now. We're looking at the addiction crisis, mm-hmm. and 
we are also trying to protect people from from dying from overdoses. So we're we're working to make sure naloxone is available to the people that need it. That's probably more under protecting health. Mm-hmm. But we're we're setting up and facilitating setting up locations where people can get treatment for their addiction. Uh, working in collaboration with state and local government, and then private and nonprofit organizations to help with the addiction issue. And then we look at what we call social determinants of health, so things that are not specifically healthcare related, but have a tremendous relationship to someone's uh, eventual health. So, for example, education is enormous. A good education makes you much more likely to have better income later in life. Again, not being in poverty, not having children growing up in poverty has a definite and proven connection to good health. Supporting families, again, proven connection to good health. Making sure that people's air or people's water are clean. Mm -hmm. Housing, so adequate housing, safe housing. I can go down the list, but these these are a bunch of social issues that are talked about a lot, but many of these have a very significant relationship to people's health. And then there are other issues that we that we deal with that are a little bit more health connected. So the issue of obesity, which has gotten much, much worse during COVID when everybody was locked up. Physical fitness, again, has become worse during COVID. Nutrition, access to adequate nutrition, access to healthy food, access to food period, and dealing with what we call food deserts, where mm-hmm. there's, there's an area where there's no good uh, source of healthy food uh, available for people. Encouraging breastfeeding, the the best possible nutrition, the best start in life for a newborn baby. And again, I could go down the list significantly. So that's promoting well-being. And then the last key phrase is all persons. So all persons, and that bespeaks our dedication to equity and opportunity for health for all. Uh, and, and it means reaching out to those communities that tend to be underserved. In Virginia, you can immediately think about the African-American community, but also the rural community, particularly in the Southwest and on South Side. Those are the, the groups that suffered the most during the COVID epidemic or pandemic and uh, also tend to have more health challenges overall in other groups. And under all persons, again, we are looking very closely at some of the disparities of outcomes, so particularly the differences uh, in infant mortality and maternal mortality, primarily as they affect the African-American population. Mm-hmm. So protect health, promote well-being for all persons. Hasn't changed since 2017. It's not going to change while I'm commissioner. Well, you covered a lot of good information there, and it really is fascinating to think of the scope and the breadth of all that VDH does, to think about all of those things that go into public health and well-being. I do want to stay on the topic of leadership just a bit longer and ask you a follow-up about a situation that made headlines a few months ago. One of the things I think we all know that the body politic struggles with these days is an ability to dialogue on issues about which there is great passion among those with divergent viewpoints. I mention this because over the summer, you, Commissioner Green, were the subject of some unflattering media coverage in the Washington Post regarding some VDH staff perceptions about your outlook on some public health initiatives focused on some of the topics that you just referenced and some of the disparities and underlying root causes. That outlook as well as uh, some of the climate issues, perhaps, that, that existed at VDH were highlighted in that article. And our purpose today is certainly not to relitigate that situation, but I would like to give you the opportunity to address a fundamental question about leadership as it relates to that and your stewardship of VDH. And you just mentioned that the mission of VDH prior to you coming on board and since you've come on board is still the same. And so you are, as we noted, a military veteran. 
And you know that leaders who chart a vision for achieving a, a shared mission, whether in the armed forces, the private sector, or the public sector, need the loyalty and commitment of colleagues to find success. Obviously, no leader is perfect. All are fallible. But those who succeed, regardless of discipline, often do so because they inspire confidence and loyalty among the people they work with. So my question, and I know this is a lot of buildup, but my question to you, sir, is this. Thinking about what happened over the summer and your role in proximity to it, I wonder what lessons you feel like you learned and how have you put those lessons into practice to enhance yourself as a leader who aspires to have the faith and the confidence of the 3,700 people who work at VDH on behalf of the 8 million plus residents of the Commonwealth? Sure. And the things I've learned are legion, but reference the situation that you talked about in general, I can probably sum it up in one word, and that's communication. And the biggest lesson is to be clear and to be thoughtful when communicating with not only the staff, but with the public, uh, with stakeholders and so on. So making sure the message is clear uh, and making sure that that message is delivered effectively. Those are the biggest the, the biggest lessons. And in that vein, we have undertaken two different surveys of our own staff, one of the management and uh, leadership and supervisory staff, and another of the entire body of employees. And they are allowed to give us feedback on what's important to them, what they see as good that should be continued, and what they see as needing improvement. And the outcome of that has been, again, that we need to work on communication, both outbound communication, where we not only explain what we're doing, but we explain why we're doing it, because that's the big piece that's missing sometimes is the why. And then inbound communication, and that is feedback from employees uh, and from management in the organization to make sure that <clears throat> that they not only know that their feedback is heard, but that it's being considered. And in situations where that particular feedback may not be put in place right away, to make sure they're aware that it nonetheless was considered, and again, the why of the decision that was made, and the knowledge that even though that idea maybe wasn't used right now in this time, in a different place in a different time, that idea might be the perfect solution. And if people know that, they'll continue coming up with ideas because ideas are the seeds of success. So it's all about communication. It's all about effective communication, not only within the organization, but with stakeholders and with the public as well. So in that vein, uh, looking back at the progress that has occurred with the surveys and, and that renewed emphasis on both internal and external communication, how would you rate both the organizational progress that you think has occurred since that episode and your own personal progress? Well, I'm certainly very much aware of the need to communicate and more deliberate and thoughtful. And as far as the organization, we've really just begun the journey because we've just gotten the information back, the complete information back from the first survey, and we're getting some basic returns from the second one. We're planning a high-level leadership meeting later on this year, and then some mid-level ones. We'll be releasing the information to key individuals within the organization and eventually to the larger employee group. But again, more to follow. Right now, we're in a self-evaluation mode. Well, I want to thank you for your candor, Commissioner Green. Introspection is important, uh, not always easy, but certainly important. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. That's on a personal and an organizational level, by the way. I often tell people our organization needs to do this, that, or the other thing to communicate. And I'll tell them I'm looking in the mirror while I'm saying this. 
Well, I appreciate that perspective, and I thank you again for sharing that. I know that you have family connections to Long Island and Florida and Philly uh, and Lynchburg, as you mentioned. And, uh, Long Island, Florida, and Philly are places I'm personally familiar with due to family and personal connections as well. If we had more time, I'd ask you about those places and your experiences there, but I, I know that you have a busy schedule, so I want to make sure that we land this plane in a reasonable amount of time. And so with that in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to close out with our customary tradition here on the Patients Come First podcast, and that is to to ask our guests a pair of personal questions from a list of 10 mystery questions. So to get us going, Dr. Green, please pick two numbers between 1 and 10, and I will give you the corresponding questions. Oh, golly. All right, I'll pick 1 and 10. Okay, 1. In the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on Earth, what would your last meal be? And I will throw in a little caveat here. Uh, Even though we talked about uh, healthy lifestyles earlier, uh, if you know it's your last day, you can probably indulge a little bit. So uh, with that caveat, what would your last meal be? Oh, my last meal? Yes, sir. Oh, golly. Um, the meal doesn't matter. I'd want to be with my wife and family. And what would you, your wife and family be eating on that day? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm boring. I'm sorry. I'm not a foodie. Um, it doesn't have to be anything extravagant. It could be comfort food or, you know, your favorite yeah. down-home meal, whatever it is. Um, probably either some kind of seafood dish or maybe jambalaya. Mm, jambalaya is always good. Okay. And then you also selected number 10. Number 10 is what is your happy place and why? My happy place is with my wife and with my family. And my happy place is also at peace with God. And that's been the way it is for a long time. It gives me internal peace, gives me uh, emotional and spiritual peace. Okay. Well, listen, I want to, again, thank you for being with us today and for being candid with us. And with that, that is going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Colin Green, who is the Virginia State Health Commissioner with the Virginia Department of Health, for joining us today. So thank you, sir. You bet. Have a great day.